This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. You don't like the Drake. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. Do you like the Drake? I love the Drake. What about the Drake? Oh, screw the Drake. I love the Drake. everyone and welcome to Robin Everyone Loves the Drake comic podcast. This podcast will take a chronological look at the third boy to wear the mantle of Robin, Tim Drake. We will follow his journey in the pages of the 90s 2000 ongoing Robin series and other notable comics of that era. We will also take a look at other Tim Drake appearances in DC Comics new and old to find out why everyone loves the Drake. Good for them. Love the Drake. <laughs> Got to love the Drake. I'm impressed. What can I say? I'm irresistible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake comic podcast. I'm your host, and welcome to episode 95. As you heard in the bumper, the show is brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net, your home for all things Batman, who was celebrating the big 80 this year. And, of course, Tim Drake, who is celebrating 30, and also this year, we're on the road to 100 episodes ourselves. You can find us over on the Batman Universe Podcast Network. We're also partnered with Batman on Films Podcast Network, batmanpodcastnetwork.com. You can get a hold of us on all the social media outlets through Facebook at facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. We're on Instagram, and you can email into the show old school. And I like, does anybody email anymore? But uh, <laughs> if you choose to uh, dust off your keyboard and type an email, you can send one to Robin ELTD Podcast at yahoo.com and we're also on youtube again this is episode 95 and this is part of our interview series that is leading up to episode 100 so this is the first one of the episodes that we're recording where i actually know where it's going to fit into place so next coming through the door for our interview segment is chris clow uh, you've heard him on batman on film he's an alumni there he has a plethora of other things he's involved in a podcast that i really like that's right into my geek uh, wheelhouse as comics and consoles he also is part of another podcast discovery belief and uh, i want to talk about that for a brief minute uh, to see how where is uh, how he feels about the new uh, Star Trek TV series which I'm sure you can hear on his podcast but give a warm welcome to uh, first time uh, being on the Drake and we'll find out while he loves the Drake uh, Mr. Chris Clow how are you doing tonight sir I'm doing really well thank you for the invitation and that really gracious introduction I appreciate it Rob 
That was me channeling my best Kevin Smith. But <laughs> if I was doing that, I probably would have been talking another hour before I asked you the first question. <laughs> really quick, Star Trek, where are you kind of falling in line with the TV series and how the, the movie universe is kind of uh, being handled currently at the moment? Well, um, Star Trek is a, a franchise that's very, very near and dear to my heart. I've been a Star Trek fan pretty much as long as I can remember, probably about almost as long as I've been a, a Batman and Robin fan. Mm. And um, so I've I've been a, a devout follower of every iteration that the franchise has taken since I've been alive, which... Nice. Uh, you know, I, I was born in 87, and that's the first year that Star Trek The Next Generation was on the air. So, um, yeah. you know, I have, a, I have a great attachment to, to that series, but really my favorite of all of the shows, and not necessarily the best, just my favorite, is the original series. Because I feel mm. like the characters are the purest in that show. The triumvirate of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy yep. is always so easy. I mean, even if the stories are really, really weird and kind of crazy, especially considering the time that that show is on the air, <laughs> the the purity of the dynamic between those three characters, is all. it, it just always sucks me in, no matter if I'm watching the best episode of that show or the worst one. Same here. Same so, here. um you know, when it comes to the movies, uh, unfortunately, it looks like they're on ice for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, as much as I enjoyed seeing my friends brought back in the 2009 film, that movie was a little on the simple side. I guess not that it's it's. I'm not saying it's a bad movie by right, any right. stretch of the imagination. It's just I miss the the allegorical direction that Star Trek has gone in in the past in a lot of its best mm -hmm. examples and I feel like that was missing in the 2009 movie and right when they picked it back up or at least started to with Star Trek Beyond which is probably my favorite of the new films same here it didn't perform well enough and now yeah, we're yeah. we're not really sure what the future holds but thankfully that's where the new television iterations of the franchise come into play and like you said I've got Discovery Debrief which is a a Star Trek podcast that I run with my wife along with our partners Cicero Holmes and Zaki Hassan and we've reviewed every episode of the show and I really like Discovery um, I th I, the, the second season was an improvement over the first but I've mm -hmm. pretty much loved the entire direction and I like that it's kind of delved back into the 23rd century in the prime timeline again Yeah, and yeah. Uh, seeing Captain Pike explored way more in depth in season 2 was a huge joy to, to observe over the, the, the past uh, season of the show and I thought Ethan Peck did a respectable job bringing Spock to life so yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 a fan of Discovery. There's certainly some missteps in, in my estimation that it's had, but overall, I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes and seeing where Picard goes later on this year. That's something that's I'm very excited I'm, about. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited uh, where that where that's going to lead. Uh, mm -hmm. Hearing that announcement, that was probably something that knowing where Patrick Stewart was in his life before that announcement was like, all right. There's no way we're probably going to see him do anything, you know, unless there's some time in, in that timeline. But to hear that announcement, I'm like, that that was almost like Christmas for Star Trek fans oh, yeah. on, on a level. I was like, I never thought we were going to get something like that. No, um, no, my, me, me neither. Uh, when I saw that announcement, it was a very, it was emotional to watch because you could tell that Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that they pulled a dump truck of money to Patrick Stewart's house. Deservedly <laughs> so. Like, right, he, yeah. he, I mean, he deserves it. But it seemed as if he gave a very heartfelt 
response to the reason why he was doing it. Uh, he had started watching the show again recently, and he had been told for the last 30 years how people had, you know, attached to those characters, and particularly the messages that Captain Picard would convey, and... Uh, I think we could use Captain Picard in 2019, or Admiral <laughs> <do>. Picard. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think that um, it's a shame that the Star Trek movie franchise is on ice, at least for the time being, but now that the TV franchise is finally starting to kick into gear in a major way for the first time since the early 2000s, I think there's a lot to look forward to. Oh, me too. And being a Star Trek fan, you know, myself for many, many years... Um, a movie that I like a lot that I, I always feel like I'm in the closet when people say they don't like this movie. And I'm like, is there something wrong that I, <laughs> I don't know if it, I saw a, most of the Star Trek films, uh, I think all but one with my aunt growing up. That was just a big mm. thing. We were going to go see mm-hmm. James Bond and Star Trek together. Oh, good, so good choice. when Star Trek five came out, I was totally excited to see this movie walked out of the theater, loved it, and then years later, the internet was born, and people (laughs) just dog on this movie. And I can look at it and go, I get it, but there's, you know, having, you know, perspective with it, I can go, okay, I I can see that, but some of the moments that still pull me into it is when Kirk and uh, Seibach are having that discussion, and where, you know, he, he could have your pain taken away. And the line that I can quote verbatim. He's like, I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. If we lose that, we lose ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. that, that whole thing. But so anytime I quote those couple little lines, then <laughs> I usually get the reply of, okay, that's about all that's good with that movie. <laughs> so normally when people are, you know, jumping on it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. But that, that is my guilty pleasure Star Trek movie. If I, if I just want something, I guess you would say mindless to watch, I would put that in, but it usually sucks me in right away but uh mm-hmm. I- i'm sure it's probably lower <laughs> on your list of uh star trek films yeah um and and i and i get it i get it <laughs> oh well and hey you're because you're a star trek fan you're not going to hear me bash what your preferences are you know <laughs> i mean if that if that movie does work for you then that's awesome it is my least favorite star trek film but that is mm-hmm. not to say that it doesn't have a lot of value. The character moment that you just brought up between Kirk and Cybok is phenomenal, and it says a lot, not just about Kirk, but a lot about Spock, and particularly a lot about Dr. McCoy. Actually, McCoy's part of yeah. that scene is probably my favorite. Um, and then the stuff uh, at Yosemite, where they're camping at the beginning and at the end of the movie, a bookend yeah. of the movie. And uh, I learned to ride a two-wheel bike at Yosemite when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. So, so I have a little <laughs> bit of, a, of an emotional connection to that. I, I learned to ride a two-wheel bike in the shadow of El Capitan. And um, <laughs> so seeing that stuff in a Star Trek movie is always a treat for me. Uh, it gets a little bit on the goofy side, but yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that's not to say that it, I, I would never contend that the movie is valueless. Far from it. Great character yeah. moments. Phenomenal score from Jerry Goldsmith. Mm. And, oh, uh, yeah. You know, there are still times, yeah, it's, it might not be the first one that I go to, but there are certainly times where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put on the final frontier. <laughs> and it's not one that I would rank as like, this is number one. I think the, there's hollow ground way, way above <laughs> it, but there's, it, it is a little bit higher in my uh, viewing rotation. Sure. Uh, one other uh, 
now switching gears over to the Dark Knight and Batman. I, I'm hoping I remember this conversation right, and I wrote it down uh, to make sure if I'm clicking on the right notes here. Uh, Batman on film, episode 139, uh, you guessed it on, after uh, quite a hiatus with uh, Batman on film, and it was during Batman's no-killing rule. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was you, and I... I I said this myself. I think yours was a dream about uh, when I was a little kid. I was always afraid of the dark. Was am I going in the right frame? That this was you that said this in the show. Yeah, I remember exactly what okay. you're talking about. So um, I was always deathly afraid of the dark, and I would have my covers all the way up to my ears because I was always afraid something was going to jab something in my ears. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, I always had a you know my action figures, my superpower stuff was just. Uh, on a dresser that was a few feet away and one night the moonlight was shining in just enough that Batman was lit up and I remember staring at uh, my Batman action figure and I was like well Batman's here in this room and he can hide pretty well in the dark so I felt a little calmer a little you know a little safer with my little Batman action figure and then hearing you say something very similar on uh, Batman on film, I was like, hey, I'm not the only one that thinks about Batman in the dark. So <laughs> for those people that haven't heard, could you uh, share that little that little story? I think it says a lot about the Batman character and where we're going to go in the next uh, little bit with this uh, conversation. Yeah, um, I, had, I had actually just moved up into a new house. So I was seven years old when this took place. And um, we had just picked up Batman Forever on VHS. And uh, it was sitting in my bookshelf, which was just across from my bed and in clear view of the moonlight coming through my window. I see. That's already creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's, I was pretty safe. It was a small town of 10,000 people. But when you're a kid, you know, you don't really have a full grasp of that. But, right. um, you know, as a young kid, though, I did still have issues, um, you know, being afraid of what I couldn't see. And that translated yep. into being afraid of the dark. And uh, in the middle of the night, my eyes sort of glinted over to that copy of Batman Forever that was <laughs> illuminated by the moonlight coming through my window. And I just heard clear as day while I was laying there a little bit uneasy, pretty much the voice of Kevin Conroy hmm. basically whisper to me by saying, don't worry, I'm in the dark. <laughs> And, you know, I think that that just, like you said, I mean, it gets down to one of the fundamental core aspects of what makes Batman one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character in fiction, is that he operates and he uses methods that are sometimes associated with uh, with evil and with with bad actors and bad operators. But he himself is virtuous and. and the the idea that hope and salvation can come from a place of darkness when normally those feelings and emotions are associated with light i think that gets to one of the key elements of what makes batman such an enduring character when he's positioned in that way uh and it's just a memory that's stuck with me now for over 20 years <laughs> that's eerily similar i was like does chris clow live in mount blanchard ohio like (laughs) just a few i'm currently living just a few doors from my parents uh parents house and you know i heard that and i remember telling ryan i'm like this is really creepy like chris almost has the same thing happen with batman that i did i think i was around 
eight, I think, eight mm-hmm. or nine, maybe, where I remember being like that age when my mom was like, you should not be bothered by the dark. But it's that whole, like you said, you can't see anything and yeah. just what the idea of what might be out there. So um, I think we could end the episode right here. You just said everything about <laughs> the Batman that needs to be said. Just that, like, this character looks like he should be just this evil monster that is going to be waiting for you in the dark, but that this character is the one that's going to protect you in the dark, I think just drew a lot of people in. All right, this is where we're going to take a quick little commercial break, and when we come back on the other side, we will hear why Chris Clow loves the Drake. just downloaded is something that I am very excited about. My name is Chris Clow. I'm a writer for Movies.com, a podcaster at a show called Geek Pulse Radio, and a diehard fan of the greatest space adventure to ever be spawned by television. Star Trek. See, Star Trek continuously speaks to millions of its fans all over the world by being a continuously optimistic voice in entertainment media that seems to become more pessimistic and dystopic every year. It's been especially easy to see that over the last 12 years, since the Trek franchise has been completely absent from television's airwaves since the abrupt cancellation of Star Trek Enterprise in 2005. While a new series of movies have been hitting the silver screen over the last eight years or so, the movies haven't exactly pleased everyone, especially where longtime franchise fans were concerned. That's why, when it was announced that Star Trek would be returning to television a couple of years ago, Trekkers everywhere were ecstatic to finally have something new to look forward to on the medium that helped make Trek what it is today. Television. And now, that show has finally bowed in the form of Star Trek Discovery. Speaking personally, and as someone who's perceived a darkness creeping in around the edges of our media and even the daily news, the arrival of new Star Trek has me feeling something that I hope this new series will emphasize. Hope. Hope in our future, in our planet, and in ourselves. Then again, I probably take this franchise a little more seriously than most people do. And that's why I knew that if I was going to make commenting and reacting to the show a reality for people to listen along with, I knew I couldn't do it alone. That's why I'm very proud to say that for my money, I have some of the best podcasters in the business coming along for the ride with me. In the first upcoming episode of this new show, we'll be featuring Rachel Baker Clow, my wife and a Northwestern University PhD candidate in biology, Zaki Hassan, a multi-talented writer, reviewer, and podcaster whom you've likely seen on his own website, Zaki's Corner, as well as places like the Huffington Post, and Cicero Holmes, an immensely insightful pop culture and societal analyst who's made his home for the last few years at the incredible Spawn on Me cast that you may have heard on the NPR One app. So be sure to subscribe to this feed 
right now and receive the first new episode of this show as soon as it hits the internet later this week. When trying to come up with a title, there was really only one name that made sense, since it's exactly what we hope to be for the rest of this first season, and hopefully many more to come. Your Discovery Debrief. Be sure to check in with the new show on Facebook, on Twitter at D-I-S-D-E-B-R-I-E-F, and feel free to shoot any questions or comments you may want over email by sending a message to hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. We're really looking forward to talking Trek with you in just a couple of days. See you soon, and until next time, go boldly, my friends. There was a nice little promo for Chris's Star Trek podcast, Discovery Debrief. You ought to go check out. So in our last little opening segment, talking about Star Trek and then going into Batman, who is a very dark character. So the opposite of the dark is the lighter character that would uh, permeate the Batman comics for a very long time in the character of Robin. So you've got this very dark character next to a bright green and yellowed character in the form of Dick Grayson, which, you know... As the story would go, we get to Jason Todd, which brings us to Tim Drake. So what was your first introduction to the character of Tim Drake or maybe even Robin uh, as a whole? Well, it's it's kind of hard to remember my first introduction to Robin because for a long time I didn't know Batman without Robin. Mm-hmm. You know, It wasn't until I was starting to absorb, I guess the animated series was the first time I really started to see solo Batman on a more regular basis and my brother would pick up comics every once in a while. This was in the early 90s so it was at the height of the Chuck Dixon era and yeah. uh, Tim Drake had pretty much just come on the scene. It was after Death of the Fam- or Death in the Family. I should say I'm getting my Snyder's and Starlin's mixed up. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, you know I, 
My first introduction to Robin, it was probably an episode of the 60s show. And I also had an old, worn VHS tape of just the, la- the, the back half of the 1943 serial, which also featured uh, Dick Grayson. Yeah. And a little bit of a darker conception of Batman overall. Yeah. So, I mean, Robin was just always there. But um, my first exposure to Tim, I think that it was in uh, an ish- a Dixon issue of Batman. It must have been. Um, and then, of course, he became a, a, at least a composite version of Tim Drake, probably a composite between Jason and Tim, mm-hmm. uh, showed up in the new Batman Adventures. And uh, and that's when I started to see his name on a more regular basis. But it wasn't until I started actually reading the books for myself and diving into the history of the characters that I really started to understand, um, I guess, the rationale that's applied to Robin's existence overall and what has made each one different. And, um, you know, I've clashed sometimes with uh, BOF members, particularly when I was uh, – really involved back in the heyday about 10 years ago about the value that Robin brings to mm-hmm. Batman because I think the value that Robin brings is very, very important as a, as a balancing figure and as someone who can give the audience, no matter the medium, more of an emotional investment in the story because Batman himself is very much a prototypical unreliable narrator. He is yeah. unreliable emotionally <laughs> he uh you know he sh- he shrugs everything off he has a will of iron but he doesn't like to even let the audience reading his stories know exactly what he's feeling and in in comics that gives way oftentimes to great artwork that tells you what he's feeling even if he may not be providing that in a narration right but um you know robin is different any of them are different even damian in his own way is different and is more emotionally honest, even if he's less emotionally honest than the other Robins. Um, So Tim Drake, I mean, really what, what sets Tim Drake apart, because if you look at, whether you look at Batman, whether you look at Dick Grayson or Jason Todd, and even Damien later on, there was always an element of destiny to them coming into the fold and Barbara Gordon is kind of the same way, too, because yeah. she was more closely tied to, to Batman because of the work of her father. Uh, but even, I mean, Cassandra Kane was guided pretty heavily towards Batman because of circumstances. The thing that sets Tim Drake apart is choice. He chose to be Robin because he wanted it. He wasn't driven into being Robin by the death of a relative. He wasn't traumatized overtly so. He saw a man in pain, and he knew after his own deduction came through that he was someone who could help to alleviate that pain and right the ship and give Batman a Robin again. And I think that that says an extraordinary amount about the strength of Tim Drake as a character. The fact that he was doing that choice and the fact that he did uh, almost force himself himself into the Robin role by forcing Batman to recognize that he was the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. It just makes me love Tim. Um, and uh, the the stories that exemplify his uniqueness as Robin are some of my favorites. So uh, so I have a lot of love for the Drake. I, I, I really do. I mean, I find value in every Robin to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tim is... Pr- 
probably the most unique of every Robin that has served beside Batman. Yeah, and I think what makes Tim so endearing uh, to a lot of people is his his first initial goal was to not like, well, I need to be Robin, was to go back to the person that was most recently Robin, aside from, you know, obviously Jason, mm-hmm. trying to convince Dick Grayson that he that Batman needs a Robin. Yeah. And I was like on the ground floor, of course, with, you know, Batman 89 coming out, saw it that summer and started buying comics. And my comic reading had, you know, lapsed in and out, you know, being younger, only got comics when mom took me to the grocery store. So I missed that point of when Dick Grayson stopped being Robin and I never quite figured that out. So when this Jason Todd Robin died, I was like, yeah, Dick Grayson's going to be Robin again. And this 13 year old kid's going to convince him. So I was rooting for Dick Grayson that whole entire summer to be like, all right, he's going to, he's going to be Robin again and get rid of this stupid Nightwing, whatever he is. (laughs) And by the end of it, I was like, this kid is going to be Robin and Nightwing is so cool. So that was a great time. And, but just that Tim's heart was in the right place and then quickly realized that Dick had moved on. And if Dick can't do it, then I'm going to take that charge. So you were mentioning some of your, those were some of your favorite stories. Uh, what are some of your favorite stories featuring Tim Drake that you, you pick up and go, oh, man, that's really good? Whether it's a lead book from Tim or if it's a story that just happened to feature Tim Drake that you go, man, that, that was really good. You know, um, some of the stuff that comes to mind, uh, because I wasn't reading the, the Robin ongoing while Dixon was writing it. Uh, I absorbed a lot of those issues after the fact when I was working at a comic book store and we had a ton of Robin back issues that I would just go through. Um, the initial miniseries is a favorite. Uh, I think Joker's Wild is also a favorite. I think that uh, that Dixon really kind of helped to set Tim apart in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also have quite a lot of affection for uh, Adam Beechin's run on the comics. Uh, That's an overlooked run. Much as I like Dixon, the Adam Beechin stuff is really good. Yeah, yeah. Adam Beechin and I think uh, Freddie Williams II, who yeah. was serving as the artist. And, um, you know, it was post one year later. So, you know, however you feel about the death of Tim's father and identity crisis, uh, mm. you know, that that was a part of, of uh, the character's status quo. But, um, you know, the one year later stuff, I, I actually really enjoyed – and um, I think that Beechin did a, a nice job in giving Tim a, a, a larger air of personal certainty. Because at that point in his life, again, whether you feel poorly about them or not, he had gone through so much, whether it was the death of his father or the death of his mm-hmm. best friend by that point. Right. And, uh, and it, it forged him a little bit more strongly into a leader. And uh, and I, I was ravenously reading Robin every month that that Beechin was on that book. Uh, Chris Yost's Red Robin I also enjoyed because I was one of the few people, particularly we're bringing Bof up again. <laughs> I, w- I was probably me and uh, Brad Lang, who was part of the sh- the site at that time on the Bof podcast. We were pretty much the only ones who were totally on board with what Grant Morrison was doing when he was steering the Batman books. And uh, but the byproduct of that was this book Red Robin by Chris Yost that featured Tim Drake basically hunting the world for evidence that Bruce Wayne was still alive. Yeah. And uh, it was a really unique sort of take 
on uh, and putting Tim in wildly different situations and scenarios that I found value in. Uh, they're probably – I don't know if I would like those stories as much these days because that book was so guided by Batman's absence. Right. And it was it was kind of always up in the air. And I'm still not totally sure I could be totally on board with uh, with Tim serving as Red Robin. It, <laughs> it, 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 I don't know. I just have kind of mixed feelings about it. But really, particularly like modern stories, like post-2000 stories, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't a lead in it, he was still a lead character in Jeff Johns' Teen Titans run. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Johns single-handedly convinced me of just how awesome the Titans could be. Because it, by that point... I had never read uh, Wolfman and Perez's New Teen Titans, yeah. and um, I certainly skipped over Jurgens's Teen Titans in the 90s, and I had only maybe cursorily absorbed some of Young Justice when Peter David was on that book. So, um, you know, I was like, oh, Teen Titans, or whatever. And then I actually read the book, and I would shut my mouth up really fast. <laughs> uh, and it was through the way that Tim was exploited in that book that I really gravitated towards Connor Kent and really, really attached to their friendship. Same here. Uh, so um, the, when you know when New Fifty Two came along and basically wiped Connor off of the face of the earth, so to speak, I was disappointed because I was kind of mourning the loss of that friendship, not just that character, but that that bond that he had shared with Tim. But um, and I'm sure that you've heard it off, often quoted before, but that moment where. Uh, they're they're locked up in Titan's Tower and Starfire is telling them to stay, you know, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and Robin is like, okay, yeah, sure, you got it, Starfire. And then goes up to his room and Cassie and Connor are berating him, like, what are you talking about? You're going to listen to her? And he just starts carving a hole in the window. And <laughs> it's like, wait, you lied to Starfire? And he just turns around, looks at both of them and says, I lied to Batman. Batman. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and that's still one of my all-time favorite Tim Drake moments. So, there, I mean, that's a long answer. Uh, no, I think you segued right into my next question of if you were going to recommend somebody's walking into the Tim Drake library of what Tim Drake books would you guide them to? Would it be the, the 183 issue uh, Robin Run, the Red Robin Run, Young Justice, or Jeff John's uh, Teen Titans one, where where would you carve that out to say, this is a good character piece and a good representation of who and what Tim Drake is, or maybe what Tim Drake means to you? I would recommend two stories chiefly, probably. The first one is A Lonely Place of Dying. Uh, even though mm-hmm. he didn't have a lot of the development that he would get later, I still think that it's essential reading to understand the the role that Tim saw for himself uh, in in the the Bat family, so to speak, and the the will that he had to persevere until he ultimately did become Robin. I think that that's an important story to absorb, and probably Volume One of John's Teen Titans mm-hmm. uh, that that does an excellent job of showing him why everybody looks to him as an authority. Even people vastly more powerful than Tim Drake look to Tim Drake uh, because not only was he trained by one of the most advanced and tactical minds in the entire DC universe, but he brings a lot of his own smarts to it. I mean, there, there were a lot of stories that would refer to Tim Drake as the heir apparent to the title of the world's greatest detective. Right. Uh, And you didn't hear that phrase associated very much with Dick or with Damien or with Jason 
or with Barbara or with Cassie. It was always Tim who had as close to the deductive capabilities of Bruce Wayne as Bruce Wayne himself with the potential to surpass them. Those those two are probably the chief stories that I would recommend, and I think they both do a really good job of illustrating not just the ground floor, like you mentioned earlier, but also the the sort of unique position of authority that he would carve for himself in the larger DC universe. A story that I always dug from... Uh, Jeff Johns' run, and I'm probably going to get the issue number wrong. I think it's issue 55, that sometime after Connor had died, Tim and Cass share this embrace and a kiss and a stairwell, just both of their their grief, where Tim's trying to console her, and it's almost like you start going, oh, will they, won't they, but they're so broken up over it, and Cassie almost gets a feeling like Tim doesn't want to deal with it. So she storms off and Tim goes downstairs into his lair. And there he is working on trying to create another Connor Kent just kind of hit me of like Tim, like as much as Cassie misses Connor, you almost got the sense that Tim missed Connor even more and was trying to replicate what uh, Luthor had done. I mm-hmm. think that's, I think that's 55. If I remembered my issues, right. I probably got it all. I think it was I think it was thirty four maybe okay uh, because I think by fifty five it was Sean McKeever who had taken over the book oh yeah okay uh, I think you're right. but but still uh, excellent ex- that's an excellent point I mean um, the fact that he was still trying to work out a way to bring Connor back into the fold that was a very emotional moment it was a legitimately emotional moment particularly. You know, if you if you'd read the whole series up until that point, and it also absorbed the events of Infinite Crisis, Johns did a really good job of sort of weaving those stories together, and um, it was provided additional context later on during Fifty Two, the weekly series, when mm. Cassie was still very much struggling with the fact that Connor was gone. Tim didn't appear a lot in that series, but whenever he did. It was always really interesting to see how he would crop up. I think he showed up a couple of times with Dick since they were both uh, helping Bruce retrace his steps from around the world. Yeah. Uh, but that whole era, yeah, man, I'm not going to – I'm I'm certainly not going to disagree with you. I, I was very, very invested in those stories. I want to switch gears to uh, Tim's costume. Uh, what did you think about his classic costume when you first saw it? And looking at it now, do you look at it and go, ah, oh, that's 1993 you know, or whatever? Or do, is it more than that? Does it transcend the 90s? Or do you look at that as like that's a time capsule? I think it transcends the 90s. Uh, I think my very first exposure to that suit was the Batman Returns Robin action figure, <laughs> which I had. And, um, you know, I thought I just thought Robin looked cool when I saw that suit for the first time. And when I look at it now, all I do is appreciate it more. Because when you look at, uh, at where Robin was and the, the evolution that that redesign sort of represents, it was a rather brilliant way to, to sort of modernize Robin's look. Without going too far, I don't think it goes very far at all into what no. you would classify as typical 90s comics aesthetics. I mean, you're looking at 89, probably more 90, and you know, people point out the decade doesn't usually kind of take effect till you get to like 92 or 93, you know, when you're talking about, you know, I remember watching uh, MTV and they had Nelson on TV talking about they're going to be the new age of the 90s. And a year later, Nirvana hits the scene. That's a, <laughs> that's a quick uh, departure from the blonde-haired twins to 
to grunge creeping in. Yeah, but no if you move the barometer just a little bit into like ninety four or ninety five, you start seeing Connor Kent in the jean jacket. You have Guy Gardner Warrior, and I think if Tim was given that given a Robin costume in the mid nineties, it would have pouches and buckles and belts and all this stuff that it doesn't need. But I've always thought that costume really transcends well. It it worked very well in the animated series. You mentioned Batman Forever. And I remember seeing those first posters of Chris O'Donnell going, that's Tim Drake's costume, you know? Yeah. Like, you, I could close my eyes and go, okay, he's got a shaved head, but that's Tim <laughs> That's Tim Drake there on the big screen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a design that just works on a pretty core and fundamental level, and it's still unquestionably Robin. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think that it falls into sort of those typical traps that are associated with late 90s – or I'm sorry, late 80s, early 90s yeah. uh, comic book aesthetics. Or, I mean even – that was probably kind of an aesthetic choice that was repeated across the DC line in the New 52. And unfortunately, Tim Drake didn't escape it then. <laughs> right. But uh, – <laughs> But yeah, that first costume, no, I have nothing but affection for it. I, yeah. I, I actually really respect what they were able to do with it. Uh, you mentioned this earlier in talking about the name, and this is usually a question I will change just depending on who the guest is. So uh, I just happened to throw this question in here. Red Robin, yum, good character, or yum, I want a burger now. <laughs> where, where do you, you know, Knowing that it's the name was attached before I even realized that Red Robin was a restaurant going back to Kingdom Come and that's you know where his original Red Robin costume would come from Mm -hmm. and getting into uh, Rebirth that they put Tim back in a pseudo Robin costume that he would typically wear but was still carrying the mantle of Red Robin Mm -hmm. Um, how how do you feel about about the name uh, that he was given for a new identity. I'm not crazy about the name overall. I mean, it really, it just kind of depends on the strength of the writing. If the writing mm. represents the character that I know and the character that I have a lot of affection for, then, you know, I, I, I don't really care what he's called as long as it's something that doesn't evoke laughter, you know, but, <laughs> right. um, you know, when, when he first became red Robin, it was kind of a contrived, way to bring the Red Robin identity into the DC universe proper. I think that was kind of spinning out of countdown to final crisis. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. yeah. And it was a, it was a little odd and it was especially odd when he just kind of decided this is who I'm going to be now. Mm -hmm. But you know, at at the same time too, there were some of those stories uh, that I did find value in, particularly during Chris run, as I mentioned before. So I, I, my feelings in general, I guess, if I had to boil it down, are, are mixed. You were talking about the New 52. In the last five years or so, and we can go back to the New 52, it seems like Tim Drake has been taking a back seat to other members of the Bat family or in some cases been left out altogether in media. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think that is that we have got to this point? Like, Even just as something as simple as there's a new like direct-to-video Lego movie, Batman Lego movie coming out, and it has Batman, Red Hood, Nightwing, and Damian Wayne, but uh, even like, Batgirl is supposed to be in this, and there's no Tim Drake. Even the new Batman animated movie that's coming out, I think in a couple months, Hush, mm-hmm. uh, they've put Damian Wayne in the Tim Drake role. Do you think it's because of the new 52 that that version of Tim Drake wasn't received so well? Or, as some people like to say, is the Bat Table too full that they Tim just kind of gets left? 
I mean, DC has a tendency to assign the same character name or code name to too many people. And I kind of think that it, it, it boils down to that. The, the most direct comparison that I think I can draw is to Wally West. Mm. Because, um, you know, some of those other legacy characters, particularly when the New 52 came out, uh, were pretty hard to find if you could <laughs> find them at all. And that's, yeah. you know, that's true of Wally. That's true of Donna Troy. Uh, it's even true of, uh, of Garth, of Aqualad or Tempest or whatever you want to call him. Yeah. And um, so now the problem is that the the most identifiable rob if if you walked into a comic book store and picked up a batman book off the rack right now the most visible and identifiable robin is damian right and damian does have a compelling story i am curious about what direction the bat books would have gone if they didn't touch how morrison left damian as a as a big morrison fan I do think that there is a lot of value in him finishing his story. You know, he started his story by introducing Damien, and he ended mm-hmm. his story effectively by killing him. Right. But I also was sad that that character wasn't around, and then they brought him back, and uh, it's been interesting to see what they've done with Damien, but it also does make me sad that, yeah, I think that it kind of just comes down to too many too many people trying to sit at the table and not enough chairs. Right. And, um, and it, it's just kind of hard... I guess, or rather, it's more, it's easy for Tim to get lost in the mix because, you know, they created a Robin who has a a direct familial connection to Batman. And it, yeah, it's, it's hard to see where things are going to go in the future. But, uh, now that Young Justice is kicked up again and it's got a very prominent comic book writer attached to it, and Tim Mm -hmm. is obviously a very important part of that, I'm happy to see that. At least we have a place to get a pretty decent Tim Drake fix. Right, uh, and that wasn't the case, uh, really, very heavily, anyways. Before Brian Michael Bendis joined DC, no, I mean we would have the Detective Comics James Tiny run, which I absolutely really love. But yeah, even at that point, it was like there was an edict, like, oh, we're gonna take Tim off the table and quote unquote kill him, and then bring him back towards the tail end of the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, you mentioned Young Justice this year. Tim Drake will be given a new code name in the pages of Young Justice. Do you think it's about time for Tim to get a new name, or should he stay a Robin of some type? That's such a hard question for me to answer, just because I <laughs> I have such an emotional connection to him as Robin. Uh, same here. Same here. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's even more true for you <laughs> than it is for me. Um, it depends on what the code name is. You know, I I, I think that's my biggest fear. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can deal with a costume change or something like that. Um, I think Bendis has hinted at that it's kind of tied into Young Justice somehow. So I've been going back through the old Young Justice books and even seeing Bendis tweet out Tim Drake is the best Robin. I'm like, why are you tweeting out Tim Drake is the best Robin? And then at the, in the same breath going, Tim Drake's getting a new code name. So by August, I think, issue eight of Young Justice, we will see the first glimpse of probably earlier than that probably the latter part of july but yeah i'm I'm torn like as long as the code name's cool then i'm fine i believe bendis when he says that though it's probably just yeah. above his pay grade because like any any change any really visible change to a major bat family character mm-hmm. the responsibility for actually in uh 
implementing those changes goes beyond DC Comics editorial. I mean, it goes to product oh. licensing and it, it goes to the highest levels of Warner Brothers. Right. So, I, I if if Bendis had his choice, if Bendis became the executive editor of the DC Universe tomorrow, then I have a feeling you'd be seeing a lot more of Tim Drake in the Batman books. But oh, yeah, so do I. I think you're right, though. Until until we actually know what the code name is going to be, it's hard to pass specific judgment. I just hope that it's one that's worthy of him, and it's one that does not diminish his very important role in the Bat books. But I mean, the Bat family is growing by leaps and bounds. <laughs> I mean, not only do you have yeah. do you have uh, Robin, but you you've also had Harper Rowe come into the mix. You've had the Signal come into the mix. Uh, Batwing was prominent there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, Cassandra Kane is still in the mix, uh, thanks to to the detective run that you mentioned earlier. Mm. It brought back into a little bit more prominence. Spoiler is back into the mix, who also briefly served as Robin for a bit. Uh, there are a lot of characters, and Gotham is only one place, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just hard to make room for everybody. And it's just a shame. But yeah, in, in this instance, it's Tim who seems to have gotten the short end of the stick. And I always think that is so I, I shouldn't say fun, like Batman works on so many levels and Ryan is always good at saying, you know, Batman is is a very malleable character. You can have ninja Batman, you can have all these different iterations of Batman, but for people to go, I like my Batman as the lone dark knight, I'm always going for for somebody that's the lone dark knight, he sure has one of the largest families in the in the DC universe. Oh yeah. You can throw a stone and hit, you know, 15 bat family members, but there's still the perception that Batman's this lone avenger of the night and I'm really hopeful for the Matt Reeves film to be coming out where a lot of people, I won't mention Rick Shue's name. Whoops, I already did. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to keep bringing this back to Batman on film, but going We've had our Batman Begins and Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. I want to see another element of Batman, and that's having, having, having a partner, having an extended family. It would be—I don't think it's going to happen at all. I would like to see a proper, a more updated version of you know the origin of Robin. But it would be great that if no origin story for Batman, we're in the universe, and Dick Grayson is already Nightwing, and maybe. We lose Jason Todd at some point, but it would be cool if, if nothing else, that the films progress to a solo Batman, to Batman having a Robin, and maybe Dick Grayson getting the guise of Nightwing by the end of the Matt Reeves. So it'd be nice to see some type of world building if it's not connected to a extended DC universe, but if it becomes a Bat universe, I'd be completely happy with that. Do you have any feelings or reservations on that or are you in a wait and see mode well um one of the things that you just said was actually the the primary thesis that i i I basically wrote about in an op-ed that i authored at bof about a year ago now where i was basically advising fandom at large to stop chasing the dragon in fact i think that was the title of the uh of the (laughs) op-ed that i wrote and in that instance, the op-ed was the Dark Knight trilogy, you know, for very much the reason that you just said. We've had really solid examples of solo Batman on film, and we've never, ever had an example of the Batman family, and even just Batman and Robin being exploited in a way that was truthful and recognizable to the source material, and uh, that was representative of the true emotional weight that can come from the Batman-Robin partnership. Any Robin. I mean, um, it's probably, understandably, it's probably most potent with Dick Grayson, but 
we have had those visions of a dark knight who serves alone and who takes pride in being by himself and not putting anyone else in danger. And, uh, yeah, I think that there's plenty of room to go in a different direction with it. Do I think that they're going to go in a different direction with it? No. I would be really surprised if Matt Reeves wanted to include Robin or really any other additional members of the Bat family outside of Alfred. It just seems like stylistically that's what he would do. I mean, maybe we'll be surprised, but Robert Pattinson's a pretty young guy as it is to have gone through one or two or even three Robins before. So if I were to guess, we're getting another solo Batman movie, which is great. I mean, I I could use more Batman movies in my life. Certainly. uh, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) I don't think anybody who's a Batman fan would by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, I just have a hard time seeing them actually incorporating Robin, even if that's what I would personally prefer. Yeah. I want to ask you about, uh, as we were talking about Batman, kick it back over to Tim Drake, talking about uh, some costumes in w- one year later. If you had to pick a costume, and you can even throw in the Red Robin costume, any, any version of, uh, what costume would you pick? The classic Tim Drake, one year later, which of his costumes, you're like, this, this is the one that either you identify with Tim Drake being in or the one that you go, yeah, this is the one that you know, Tim Drake should be wearing. Because he's had, he's had a few. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody can really argue or at least not very sufficiently argue with <laughs> the fact that his original costume is the purest Tim Drake suit. My personal favorite actually probably is one year later uh, just because it's a little simpler and I think that there's elegance in simplicity. Mm-hmm. And it has long sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think long sleeves are important in Gotham City. But um, I really like One Year Later. That's probably a personal favorite. I really liked the way that Tim's suit was interpreted in the Arkham games. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't crazy about his haircut, but I didn't have any complaints about the suit. I thought that the vision of Tim that we saw in those games, in, in Arkham City and Arkham Knight were movie ready basically oh yeah me too so um yeah i'm a i'm a i'm a big fan of the way and it was just it that character was recognizable like when when you teamed up with with tim particularly in arkham knight because you saw him more yeah uh, making your way through uh through harley's hideout in the early going of that game and the first time you really get to team up with robin I love that part, and I love that Tim's voice was very much Tim's voice. Oh, yeah. Matthew Mercer did such a great job uh, yeah. voicing Tim Drake. And it depends which way the wind blows, and Terrence will say it depends on which guest I have on the show to which way I say, oh, I love that costume. That's my favorite costume. There's been multiple episodes where, like, I love the One Year Later costume. And just in this first interview series I did with Donovan Morgan Grant, we were talking about the classic costume, and he was like, Tim needs to have you know no long sleeves. And I'm like, yeah, that's right, no long sleeves. <laughs> but I, I got to tell you, one of my favorite action figures is the uh, Batman and Son DC Direct uh, line of action figures. Oh, yeah. And I bought the you know Robin Damien 2-pack, and he, Tim just has this really long cape that goes all the way to the ground and kind of folds up like Batman does. <laughs> this always sounds more 
morbid, but I told my wife, I want to be buried with this figure. There's just something <laughs> about this action figure. And she knows, okay, up by the casket, there needs to be a lonely place of dying and this Tim Drake figure. <laughs> well, I mean, the cape, they, they did a nice job on the design of the cape because the scallops on the edge of that cape are not Batman scallops, you know? Right. Like, they actually look kind of feathery when he when he flares his cape out. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, one of my favorite Robin covers is probably issue number 150, where that, that suit is in great prominence. It was oh, yeah. just a couple of issues after uh, one year later started. And I think it's just a beautiful cover. And, uh, and seeing the cape kind of flare out, uh, giving that kind of service to... A robin flying in the air, I think, is really cool. That's something I also really liked. Shortly after that time, Bruce adopts Tim Drake officially, and I think it's planned in the story. Ironically, you know, Damien would uh, come uh, very shortly thereafter. But having the you know the scallops on the on the gauntlets being, they almost look like they're Batman's gloves, but it really ties in to. Tim is part of Bruce Wayne, part of the, not that he wasn't part of the Bat family before, but it's almost having that identifiable part of, I I am Bruce Wayne's son, which I always thought that was really cool that he decided, hey, I'm going to have these on my costume as well. And I also thought the costume was a great nod narratively that they are Connor Kent's colors. Oh, yeah. And I had a chance to talk to... um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name now. Ed McGinnis at Motor City Comic Con a couple years Ooh. ago, and uh, he signed, you know, uh, the issue. And I said, I, I love the costume. I said, this probably sounds like a dumb question. I said, which came first? So the animated series, Tim Drake, or this? And he said he, it was actually the comics that they were working on. And Warner Brothers got to see the updated costume and said, Wow, that's really good. We'd like to use it in the animated series. So he said he got credit for creating the look of uh, Tim Drake in the animated series as well but the so that made me like the costume even more that it cuz I always thought oh they saw it in the animated series then they brought it over to the comics but it mm-hmm. was actually the other way around so yeah um, his his cover was great then like you said the other covers in that early one year uh later done by Pat Gleason the costume just looks absolutely marvelous uh, yeah, those. and and the in-story reason, like you mentioned, where they're Connor's colors. That was, I think, that was in the very last issue of Fifty Two when yeah. when they gathered at the the Superman memorial statue, where they added a statue for Connor. And uh, yeah, as someone who was and is still very much invested in in that friendship, particularly during those first, I think, twenty six issues of Johns's Teen Titans, what a what a really nice sort of thematic way to codify the importance of that friendship in Tim's mind. I, yeah. I, I just, I still really appreciate that. And I think that just speaks to the strength of John's story. I mean, 52 was written by four different writers, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. John's wrote that part. I, I'm uh, pretty sure too. Because it, it punched you in the gut when you, mm-hmm. when you realize the full scope of their friendship. Well, the final question I've got for you, why do you think Tim has had such, has lasted as long as he has? And, uh, do you think that 30 years from now we'll be talking about Tim Drake's uh, 60th <laughs> anniversary? Uh, I'll answer your second question first. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what form he will take, but Tim Drake is now a legacy character who is legitimately canonized in the long-running Batman story mm-hmm. that unfolds every single week. Tim's not going away. 
He's got a very vocal fan base. In fact, he has he maybe has the most vocal fan base of any of the Robins. And yeah, I think that I, I don't think that they're going to get rid of him. I mean, if they can find a way to use him effectively in Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Uh, by showing him as an old man, then they can sure as hell find a way to keep him around in the comics. Right. Uh, why does he stand out? Why do we remember Tim Drake? Why does he? Why? Why is that character so easy to conjure in our minds? I think it goes back to what I described earlier about the fact that he is the Robin who chose to be, uh, and it was the strength of that will that forced one of the greatest heroes in the DC universe, one of the greatest heroes in the world to recognize that this guy is special and that he needs to be encouraged and aimed. And Batman saw a responsibility to do that. It's one of the reasons why he, he brought him in the, into the fold as Robin. And over the next 30 years of stories that we've absorbed with Tim Drake, he has continually proven to us that as the Robin who chose to become Robin and as the one who wanted this life for himself, he's the guy who is able to shoulder that kind of responsibility in ways that not really any of the other Robins could at a similar position in their careers. And uh, and I think that that speaks a lot to the inherent strength of Tim Drake as a character. And uh, I just hope that DC doesn't lose sight of the fact that they've got somebody special and they should certainly keep encouraging him so that we can join him for the ride. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on to the show. Sorry it's been so long that you've been on my my bucket list of people <laughs> that I, I want to have on the show. And you start listening to other podcasts. I heard uh, you mentioned Tim Drake one time that you really liked the character, and I talked to Ryan about it. He's like, oh, yeah, he loves, he loves Tim. We had to have him on the show. And it was like, all right, we'll do that. We'll do that. So I'm glad you're here to help us uh, – Ring in episode 100. Where can people find you online? Uh, where uh, can people go hear some of your shows? And do you have any uh, that are coming up that you'd like to plug? Well, again, thank you for bringing me on. I really appreciate it. I love, I love all the Robins. But yeah, Tim does have a, a, a special place of affection in my heart. So I'm glad that uh, that you invited me so I could talk about him. Uh, I mean, I still got my my Tim Drake Robin logo T-shirt in my drawer. And it's got holes in it, but I'm not throwing it away because <laughs> I, I, I just love it too much. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at Chris Clow, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-O-W. Uh, you could find some of my writings at my official website, which is bychriscloud.com, bychriscloud.com. Like you mentioned before, Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast, is my most active podcast project it's been a while since we recorded an episode but that's just because discovery's off the air and people have right. been busy but uh, we're planning on getting together again real soon to talk about what's coming down the pike for star trek which is quite a lot and uh, i'm also currently developing the next issue of my podcast comics on consoles which will be dedicated to uh 1994's the death and return of superman on the super nintendo and the sega genesis it's been a while since I put one of those out too, but those take a lot of work, oh, a yeah. lot of research. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, but at the at the end of the day, every episode of that show that I've put out, I've been really, really proud of. Uh, probably the most proud of the most recent one the, uh, about Spider Man from the year two thousand. Oh yeah, uh, but yeah, a lot of a lot of energy goes into them, so that's why they always take so long. But uh, but I think that it's a it's an interesting show, and uh, you should check it out. 
I'm going to have to dust off my Super NES. I've always kept all my video game consoles, and my friends are like, why don't you take them to GameStop? I'm like, you know, one of these days I'm going to want to play a game, and sure enough. So hearing that you're going to be doing uh, Death and Return of Superman, I'm going to have to dust that game off and uh, <laughs> give it a spin before you release uh, the episode. Hey, it's a, it's a really interesting game. I mean, the, the pixel art is really, really evocative of oh, yeah. a lot of the Dan Jurgen stuff. Superman has kind of a spotty history in video games as <laughs> is, so I'd argue that that's one of his best games. I, I would agree so. And I don't think you're going to do one on Superman uh, 64, are you? Well, you, know, you might be surprised. I mean, <laughs> I did, if I did one on Aquaman Battle for Atlantis, which was my second episode, and I did, yeah. uh, you know, I did one for Batman Dark Tomorrow, which was my fifth episode. Uh, I loved uh, that episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to put together. Got to talk to Scott Peterson, who wrote the game story and who's written Batman comics, and who also has a lot of affection for Robin and Tim Drake specifically, and. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So there's probably room for Superman 64 at some point. I just have to work up to it because that's not oh. something you just release willy-nilly. That's a story that needs to be told. Oh, my gosh. I have not swore at a video game <laughs> more, like, more rings. Like, oh, my gosh. Well, want- l- 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 let, me, let me put it this way. <laughs> so I got that game. I think I was – I must have been, like, eight. And my poor grandmother bought it at full price. Oh, and, wow. and got it for me for it was either Christmas or my birthday because they're eight days apart, so it was one or the other. And um, that game was so bad that <laughs> I didn't realize it at the time. But the the most time that I spent in that game, there was a, a mode where you could just free fly around Metropolis, mm-hmm. and I would play that all the time and basically pretend I was playing a better game. That's how bad <laughs> Superman sixty four was. Yeah. So, but but again, I mean, there there is a story to be told there because. Uh, it, uh, it's legendary. It's not legendary for the right reasons. No, no. <laughs> now, I got the game used, thankfully. I think I still paid 15 bucks for it, I think. Mm. But, uh, which I thought that was $14 too much. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we, like, there were four of us that played a whole bunch of games together. We were big Tomb Raider fans and then mm-hmm. would do, you know, the NCAA, you know, 13, 14, 12, you know, whatever year it happened to be, do all the dynasty modes, and then we would go to those. And so when Superman came out, we were like, oh, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And each of us tried, tried it. I remember my cousin opened up the front door and just threw the cartridge out in the street. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. He's like, you're never going to play this game again, and you know it. And I was like, well, I, I still want it, you know. You'd have well, to know my cousin to know that that's a true statement. Oh, no. I, hey, I believe it. But in, in some respect, too, though, for the people who have actually played Superman 64 to completion, hats off to you. Oh, yeah. Because that's probably more indicative of your skill as a video gamer. If you have the patience and the adversity, to, to or if you work <laughs> through the adversity of that game that that game represents and you actually get to the end, kudos. Yeah. You, you need the keys to the kingdom after yeah. <laughs> after that one's over. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming on to the show and telling everyone why you love the Drake. You've been listening to the BatmanUniverse.net, but more importantly, you've been listening to Chris Clow Loves the Drake. We'll be back in a few weeks. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Robin. Everyone loves the Drake podcast. This has been brought to you by the BatmanUniverse.net. Tim Drake, Robin, and all Batman-related characters are under copyright of DC Comics. This podcast is solely for entertainment purposes, so no infringement is intended by this show. 
the show is not a good revenue stream. Actually, there's not a stream at all. All music and sound clips are under copyright by their respected copyright holders. So there should be no need to send the Penguins lawyers after us for ill-gotten gains because there are none. You can get a hold of the show a few different ways. We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. You can also email in at robineltdpodcast at yahoo.com. Our Facebook page can be found at www.facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. And as always, you can message directly over at the batmanuniverse.net. So email, tweet, or message us. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your comments or responses on the show. The show you're listening to can be found a few different ways through iTunes and Windows Media. Also, over at our host, TBU. Leave us a review on iTunes if you listen there. It'll help spread the word of the show. Make sure you head over to the batmanuniverse.net. your home for all things Batman and Robin. Thanks for listening to the show and hearing why everyone loves the Drake. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. Take care.